Today on the Matt Wall Show, we're hearing more and more about the phantom of white supremacy in the lead up to election day. But white supremacy shouldn't be anywhere on the list of our top concerns. I'll talk about it. Also, a bunch of passenger jets have been grounded after they were found to have loose bolts. Are we heading closer to that major airline disaster that I warned was coming? Plus, the defense secretary went missing for several days and nobody noticed. And that's not even the first time that kind of thing has happened in this administration. Finally, a video has gone viral of a female track runner beating a random guy in a race. Trans activists and feminists are celebrating the video. But I'll explain why it actually undermines their position. All of that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show. Have you noticed that big tech companies are masquerading as privacy companies? They'll tell you to just fix your privacy settings, turn off app tracking, and you're all good. Right, are we supposed to believe that the big bad tech wolf has now turned into our sweet grandma? Big tech feeds on your information. Sure, maybe they'll release a feature now and then that does some good, but collecting and selling off your data is in big tech's nature. It's what they do. They can't stop themselves from looking at what you do online. So that's why to protect yourself against big tech's prying eyes, I use ExpressVPN. When you use the uh, ExpressVPN app on your computer or phone, you're hiding your unique IP address so that websites can't use that address to find out your real location or track what you do online. On top of that, ExpressVPN encrypts and reroutes 100% of your online activity so your internet provider, Wi-Fi admin, and hackers cannot see it. The best part, though, is how easy it is to use. It just takes one click to protect all your devices, plus One ExpressVPN subscription covers up to five devices at the same time, so you can protect your entire family, too. That's why ExpressVPN is rated number one by uh, CNET, Wired, TechRadar, and countless others. Today's the day. Get the VPN that I trust to protect my online privacy when big, bad tech is at the door. Visit expressvpn.com slash Walsh, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash Walsh, expressvpn.com slash Walsh to learn more. George Allen Kelly is a 75-year-old rancher who lived for more than a decade on a 170-acre property in Keno Springs, Arizona, which is just over a mile from the southern border. On January 13th, 2023, Kelly sent a text message to his son telling him that he had spotted, quote, 33 drug runners on his property. The message itself was nothing out of the ordinary. For years, Kelly had made similar complaints about illegal migrants trespassing at his ranch on their way into the United States. Uh, sometimes Kelly told his family members, uh, and, you know, and, and these migrants were, were armed. But on this particular occasion, Kelly made an unusual request. He asked his son if he could drive up and help defend the property. And his son replied, nope, be careful. Kelly's next text was, careful is not an option. It is either run or fight, and I'm too old to run. Mom is locked and loaded also. Now, 17 days later, yet another group of illegal migrants trespassed onto Kelly's ranch, and this time it was at least three people, probably more. Kelly told authorities that he was frightened because he had heard gunfire earlier in the day from a larger group of migrants. So to warn this new group of migrants away, Kelly fired a series of warning shots with his rifle because, again, they were on his property. And one of those shots, authorities allege, uh, ended up killing a 48-year-old illegal alien from Mexico. Now, this illegal alien had been arrested and deported several times from the United States already, but he was able to 
keep coming back to this country because the White House decided not to enforce immigration law. This week, George Allen Kelly rejected a plea deal offered by prosecutors. They want him to uh, plead guilty to negligent homicide and then serve eight years in prison, but he told them no. So Kelly's trial for murder will take place in a couple of months. And whatever you think of George Allen Kelly or this case, personally, I think the man should not spend one single second in jail for defending his property from invasion after he had been uh, abandoned by the federal government. There's no denying that the Biden administration deliberately created the circumstances that led to the shooting. So if you want to blame anybody for it, you blame the people in the administration who created those circumstances. I mean, this is an elderly man with no criminal history. You know, he's been uh, alive on this earth for over seven decades, hasn't committed any crimes. He has a piece of property, just wants to defend his property. Trying to protect his wife from, from criminals that the Biden administration repeatedly encouraged to trespass on his property. And nobody can dispute any of that. Unsurprisingly, though, when um, Biden delivered a speech in South Carolina yesterday on the topic of systemic injustice in the United States, Joe Biden did not mention George Allen Kelly, even though George Allen Kelly is certainly a, a victim of systemic injustice. In fact, as far as I could tell, Biden has never mentioned Kelly a single time. He's trying to throw the guy in prison, but he's never mentioned his name or talked about the case. Instead, Biden devoted the entire speech uh, yesterday to what he calls the greatest threat facing this country, something called, quote unquote, white supremacy. And you've probably heard about this white supremacy thing before. This white supremacy thing, Biden argues, is a far greater danger to the United States than the wide open southern border, which allows foreign criminals to terrorize American citizens and invade their property. Uh, it's uh, one of the greatest dangers we face, period, Biden says, is white supremacy. And to that end, uh, Biden spoke extensively about a mass shooting that took place in that same church nearly a decade ago in 2015. Uh, watch a little bit of this. On June 17, 2015, the beautiful souls, five survivors and five survivors, invited a stranger into this church to pray with them. The word of God was pierced by bullets and hate, of rage, propelled by not just gunpowder, but by a poison. Poison that has for too long haunted this nation. What is that poison? White supremacy. Oh, it is. It's a poison. Throughout our history, it's ripped this nation apart. It says no place in America. Not today, tomorrow, or ever. White supremacy is a poison, Biden says. And uh, never mind the mixed metaphors, because he says it's a poison, and he says that it's haunting the nation, and a poison doesn't haunt. So he should have said that it's a ghost haunting the nation, which, by the way, would be, would be closer to accurate, that it is a ghost. It's a phantom. It's a thing that doesn't really exist. But he says, anyway, that this thing is tearing uh, the fabric of this country apart. And to prove that point, to prove how pervasive and all-encompassing white supremacy is, Biden is talking about a mass shooting that occurred in 2015. Now, you may uh, already realize this, but there have been um, a lot of shootings and homicides in this country since then. There have been, in fact, well over 100,000 homicides in the nine years since that shooting took place. And um, a, a hugely disproportionate number of the victims of those homicides have been black. But Biden isn't interested in talking about any of that because, of course, as we know, a hugely disproportionate number of the people killing those black people are also black. So instead, we go back to 2015 
to make the point about white supremacy. Now, Biden is also, of course, not interested in talking about all the mass shootings that have been committed by, say, trans-identifying mass shooters since 2015. There have been several of those. And Biden certainly isn't talking about the killer who mowed down five people last year in Texas, including a nine-year-old boy. Yes, the killer had been deported four times before once again entering the U.S. illegally. But uh, that's not the point, Biden says. He doesn't want you thinking about the preventable systemic failures that caused these tragedies. Instead, he wants you to focus on the one mass shooting that he pretends to care about so he can demonize men who look like George Allen Kelly. Now, at this point, you have to ask yourself, I mean, does any of this actually work anymore? Does anyone buy it? It's not 2020. People, most people anyway, seem to have come down from the hysteria they experienced after George Floyd's overdose death. Many people seem to have had some time to come to their senses at least a little bit. So does this still work? I mean, if I were to list the top 5,000 problems facing the United States in 2024, white supremacy wouldn't be on the list and it wouldn't be close to making the list of the top 5,000. Does anybody seriously think otherwise at this point? Now, you're not supposed to linger on what Biden said, of course. You're supposed to get outraged about a church shooting from a decade ago and conclude that white people are the problem. Joe Biden's handlers are going for emotion, not reason, of course. But it's important to dwell on this for a little bit just to underscore how totally and completely dishonest all of this is. Even if you use, you know, the left's own data and pretend that it's all accurate, which is always uh, a dubious proposition, there's still no conceivable argument that white supremacy is a significant threat in this country or that any of our major problems can be traced back to it. So consider, for example, a um, report from the left-wing ADL, which is effectively just an arm of the Democratic Party. And this was a report from last year. And the report states that, quote, all the extremist-related murders in 2022 were committed by right-wing extremists. And of those murders, the ADL reports, 80% were committed by white supremacists. Well, that sounds pretty bad. I mean, Reuters certainly thought so. They wrote up a whole report with this headline, white supremacists behind over 80% of extremism-related U.S. murders in 2022. So it's all very scary, uh, you know, or, or it would be. Um, until you do what the ADL doesn't want you to do, which is to look at the data for more than five seconds. So if you do that, you discover a couple things. For one thing, in all of 2022, there were a total of just 25 extremist-related murders that the ADL identified. Okay, This is, again, according to their numbers. Of, if we just take their numbers uh, at face value, you end up with 25. And that's for the entire country of 330 million people. We're talking about 25 murders. Now, for comparison, far more people are struck by lightning every year. Has anyone ever said that lightning strikes are the greatest threat facing Americans? I mean, it's absurd. Here's maybe a better comparison to put 25 into context. The city of Chicago does 25 murders in two weeks, every two weeks, all year, every year. And that's one city in the span of half a month. But 25 alleged extremism-related murders in the entire country in the entire year is a crisis, we're told. So with that context in mind, let's look at the ADL's language. They say that, quote, 60% of the murders came from just two incidents, uh, deadly shooting sprees in Buffalo, New York, 
and Colorado Springs, Colorado. So for the most part, we're talking about a grand total of two incidents. And one of those mass shootings, the shooting in Colorado, was committed by a self-described non-binary individual whose lawyer demanded that the court respect his preferred pronouns. And this is someone that the ADL has coded as a right-wing domestic extremist. Yes, a right-wing domestic extremist with preferred pronouns. I mean, how do you end up coming to that conclusion? Well, it's because the ADL's methodology has determined that basically by definition, if somebody commits a mass shooting, they are automatically a right-wing extremist. That's the way it works with this kind of data. And you know that's why it's not designed to withstand any kind of scrutiny. The point is to convince Americans that there's an epidemic of white nationalists committing mass shootings and to demonize the political enemies of the Biden administration in order to lay the groundwork for their imprisonment or worse. That's why they're lying about right-wing extremism, quote-unquote. That's why they're going after George Allen Kelly. It's also why the Biden campaign just posted this graphic on social media, and this is officially from the Biden campaign, uh, which explicitly compares Donald Trump to Adolf Hitler. Now, of course, there's nothing uh, innovative about this comparison. We hear this from the left all the time. It does represent something of an escalation, though, coming officially from the Biden campaign and explicitly making this connection between Trump and Hitler. And how do they do it? Well, they list a bunch of Trump quotes and they try to link those quotes with Hitler quotes as clumsily as possible. In fact, they're not even full quotes. These are, you know, vague paraphrases of Trump, and then they are compared to paraphrases of Hitler. And then uh, I guess they expect us to be mind blown by the by how closely the two align. Now, the funniest thing is that uh, is that they they say that Trump is is like Hitler because uh, Trump has declared that forces within our country are worse and more dangerous than enemies outside of the country. And they say, well, that, that's exactly what, what Hitler said. But that's exactly the sort of thing that the Biden administration says all the time. They are constantly warning that domestic extremists are a greater threat than foreign terrorists. That was the point of the speech Biden just gave yesterday. Now, the only difference is that Trump generally identifies powerful people and institutions like the media as his enemies, correctly identifies them as such. Biden, on the other hand, goes after voters. I mean, his boogeyman is MAGA Republicans, which means, which means you know, we talk about MAGA Republicans. It's not just Republicans in Congress. That means the tens of millions of Americans who, who support Trump. So that's the level of political discourse we have achieved in this country. It's not subtle or intelligent or clever in any way. This is a campaign to dehumanize anybody who would vote against the Biden administration so that they can be imprisoned or, or worse. And it's been going on for quite some time. And this week, the Washington Free Beacon reported that the Biden administration has once again begun distributing federal funds on the basis of race. And you might remember that all the way back in the beginning of the administration, they tried to allocate farm aid based on the skin color of the farmers. The administration was going to make loan forgiveness payments to so-called minority farmers to the tune of $4 billion, while excluding, specifically, farmers who are white. Now, a federal judge had to put a stop to that, but um, now they're essentially doing the same thing again. According According to the Free Beacon, there are hundreds of millions of dollars allocated in two pieces of federal legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. The point of the legislation, Biden said, was to, quote, 
create new well-paying jobs for workers who, quote, helped build this country. The idea is to provide financial support to industries that are going to be phased out as the Biden administration plunges headlong into its suicidal plan to shut down the nation's coal industry by 2035. But if you read the fine print, as the Washington Free Beacon did, you'll find that White House bureaucrats have been insisting that only majority minority areas receive this federal funding. And they've rigged various bureaucratic rules to make that a reality. Majority white areas like Gillette, Wyoming, for example, are getting shut out of these grants entirely, even though they are mining towns that would qualify for the money in every other respect. But too bad, they have the wrong skin color. So no money for them. Again, this is part of an easily observable pattern. Everywhere you look, the administration is doing what it can to demonize and humiliate Americans because of their race. As just one part of that effort, Joe Biden's National Park Service recently proposed removing the William Penn statue from a park in Philadelphia. Now, William Penn, you may have guessed from the name, or if you know anything about American history, you already know this, is the founder of the state of Pennsylvania. And Biden wanted his memorial gone because he's white. This comes just a few weeks after the Biden administration ordered that a century-old memorial to post-war reconciliation had to be torn down in Arlington National Cemetery, which we talked about on the show. In the case of the Penn statue, they wanted to replace it. They wanted to take it down and replace it with uh, something else that would honor Native Americans, who, by the way, did not found the state of Pennsylvania. Why were they doing this? Well, you know, because William Penn did great things. He founded the colony that became Pennsylvania. He was imprisoned uh, in, in the Tower of London without hesitation for his faith multiple times. He believed in religious freedom. And of course, he was white. Those were his sins, so they tried to take him down, just like the statues of Columbus, Teddy Roosevelt, and so many others. Now, late yesterday, in a development that we haven't seen in many similar cases, the Biden administration did suddenly back off of this plan. People noticed how deranged it was, and they spoke up about it, and within just a few hours, the White House caved. So the Penn statue can stay for now. They have conceded. All it took was some social media backlash and complaints from a few politicians, and they folded. But the important fact is that they tried to do this in the first place. Now, they may have backed away from their demolition plans for the William Penn statue, but they're not backing away from the underlying agenda. And as we head closer to the election, you can expect to hear a lot more demonizing of white people, many more warnings about the phantom dangers of white supremacy, warnings that should be greeted with the same shrugs and eye rolls and confused head scratches that Biden would get if he said the greatest threat facing our country is like a big evil dragon who lives up in a lair in the mountains somewhere. He might as well be saying that. After all, we have to worry about white supremacy in this country about as much as we have to worry about evil dragons. But this is all that the powers that be have. It's what they rely on. They need you scared and angry and resentful and confused. Because that's the only way they win. Now let's get to our five headlines. Grand Canyon University is an affordable, private Christian university based in Phoenix, Arizona. They are dedicated to making education fit into your already busy schedule, which is why they offer 270 of their academic programs online. From scholarships to academic support, GCU's graduation team provides you with the personal support you need to obtain your goals. GCU's online programs offer you the freedom to earn your degree 
on your own time from wherever you are. GCU is praised for its culture of community, giving, and impact. They integrate the free market system and a welcoming Christian worldview into all of their academic programs. Achieve your goals with a personalized plan and a supportive team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University, private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. That's gcu.edu. We'll begin with this uh, very encouraging news. United Airlines, from CBS News, United Airlines and Alaska Airlines say that they found loose hardware on door plugs on several of their grounded Boeing 737 MAX 9 planes days after a door plug blew off of an Alaska Airlines plane while it was in flight. United said in a statement to CBS News, since we began preliminary inspections on Saturday, we have found instances that appear to relate to installation issues in the door plug, for example, bolts that needed additional tightening. These findings will be remedied by our tech ops team to safely return the aircraft to service. Alaska Airlines said in a statement Monday night that as our maintenance te technicians began preparing our 737-9 MAX fleet for inspections, they accessed the area in question. Initial reports from our technicians indicate some loose hardware was visible on some aircraft. When we're able to proceed with the formal inspection process, all aircraft will be thoroughly inspected in accordance with detailed instructions provided by the FAA in consultation with Boeing. It, it did not specify, though, how many of these planes uh, have these loose bolts. So that's the encouraging update. And, of course, you heard about the, the flight, um, as mentioned, where the door blew off while they were still in the air. And um, apparently, by just pure dumb luck, there didn't happen to be anybody sitting in the seat right next to where the hole blew open. Uh, if, if there had been someone there, you know, they wouldn't be here anymore. They would probably be in several different places strewn across the state of Oregon. And now they tell us that there are loose bolts on a bunch of uh, different planes. A bunch of different 737 uh, MAX 9s all have these loose bolts. Wh which, is, which is, I mean, the kind of thing you don't like to hear about planes, to put it mildly. You know, if somebody's talking about loose bolts or loose screws or something like you, you, that should be referring to IKEA furniture, not passenger jets. Uh, you would like to think that there wouldn't be any bolts that need tightening on an airplane, much less multiple air, airplanes. And not only that, but they needed this uh, potential disaster to occur before they went back to check. You know, I know that. <clears throat> Whenever I'm boarding a plane, um, I always, you know, I always try to inspect the aircraft myself uh, from from like the window in the terminals. I'll, I'll look at the airplane, I'll do a little inspection, and then when I when I get on the plane, I look around, and uh, I always see things that concern me. Uh, I'll see a little bit of uh, something on the plane that looks like it's a little rusty there, or something looks a little, so. I see that all the time, but every time I see that, I think to myself, well. You know, it doesn't look good, but I mean, don't be ridiculous. Obviously, they wouldn't send the plane into the sky if if that was actually a problem. So they must have it under control. That's what I tell myself. But now I can't tell myself that anymore. Now, now I'm wondering if maybe they really should, before we all get on the airplane, maybe they should have all the passengers just walk around the airplane to do a quick inspection to see if we see any dents or loose screws or anything. It's like they do if you if you rent a car. You know, you rent a car from Enterprise. They bring you out to the lot, and then they have you do a little circle around the car uh, to check for damage. So maybe we need to do that with planes, too. I don't know. Because they don't seem to be picking up on this stuff on their own. Or even worse, even worse, they are picking up on it, and they do know about some of these problems, 
but uh, they're not doing anything about it. So here's a spokeswoman with the National Transportation Safety Board. Uh, she gave a press conference yesterday about all this, and, and, and here's something that she said. Listen. Now, our systems group uh, began looking at all the aircraft systems. They documented the entire flight deck, and they asked about the auto pressurization fail light that did illuminate in three previous flights. There was a decision by Alaska Airlines to um, a restriction, actually, they put in place. They called it an ETOPS restriction that uh, prevented that plane uh, from being flown to Hawaii over uh, water. So that it could, if, so, if some light did illuminate, it could return very quickly to an airport. Okay, wait. Um, hang on here. Just one second. So Alaska knew that the plane had pressurization problems. And rather than send the plane in for repairs, they decided instead to just not fly it over water. I mean, how is this not a major scandal? They said, yeah, there might be an issue. We just, just don't take it over water and it'll be fine. I mean, think about that for a second. Think about how you would feel if you were getting on a plane and you knew about, like if they told you, if the captain came on the, the intercom and said, ladies and gentlemen, uh, expecting a smooth flight this evening. Everything looks good. Uh, just as long as we don't fly over any large bodies of water, everything should be fine. And uh, also, as long as you're not sitting, sitting next to the doors, then, then uh, we, we expect everything to be fine. We just need to be able to land this puppy, you know, in a split second if we need to. It really is amazing. And it's like Alaska Airlines was basically acting, was acting like me 15 years ago when I was broke and uh, and I had a, and my a tire blew out. And I put the spare on and I was riding around on the spare for three months because I couldn't afford to get a tire. And anytime somebody got in the car with me, I would just tell them, it's like, everything's probably fine. I just, I'm, I can't go over 50 miles an hour and I don't go on highways in this thing because I, you know, in case anything happens. But you would hope that commercial airline companies would be a little more responsible than I was when I was a broke 22-year-old, but they're not. And, and keep in mind, here to me is the real point of this, is you keep in mind what you heard um, on this show a few weeks ago. Remember, it was like three weeks ago when I did a monologue on this show where I warned you that we are heading towards some major airline disasters. And, and in the three weeks since I said that, there was a, a collision of a passenger aircraft on a, on a runway in Japan. That was a couple weeks ago. And then you have a, a hole being blown open in the side of a plane while it's at cruising altitude. And that's just in the three weeks since I said that. So we are, and neither of those are the major, I mean, the collision of the plane could have been a major disaster. Fortunately, it wasn't as bad in terms of uh, in casualties as it could have been. So we, we have not had the major disaster yet, but we are well on our way. And I, I normally enjoy saying, I told you so, but when it comes to this, I'm not going to enjoy saying it. Um, I don't want to be right, but I am because, it, it, and it's not like I, you know, this is not some kind of prophecy on my part. It's just that it's clear when you look at the situation, that the competence and quality and skill level 
in the airline industry has dropped dramatically over the past 20 years and especially over the past 10. And that's happening in every major industry and including the airline industry. Um, and why is that happening? Well, there are, there are really actually multiple cultural factors that uh, play into that. But the number one culprit is DEI, diversity. We've got to diversify the ranks. Too many white men. Uh, we got to get more people involved, which doesn't mean, okay, and of course, every time I say this, uh, you always have idiots that hear that. Oh, you're saying that a black person can never fly? No. It's once you start emphasizing in the hiring process anything but merit and skill and competence. When anything at all comes above that in the hiring process, in any industry, especially the airline industry, for God's sake, when that happens, bad things follow. And, and so that's it. You don't need to be an Ostradamus to, to, to predict that. It's just, it, it will happen. It's, it, it's, it's inevitable. Um, and so, yeah, we're well on our way, I hate to say. Especially as someone who still flies all the time, I, I very much um, wish this was not the case, but it is. All right, moving on to Axios. Uh, we're back to a familiar yarn with this one, this time from Axios. Um, here's the report. During the hottest year on record, the global average surface temperature fell just shy of the 1.5 degree warming limit under the Paris Climate Agreement. This is not really the point. I just want to pause here. It's hilarious to me that we've set a limit for how hot the earth can be. So they got together and they said, here's the limit of how hot it can be. <laughs> what do you mean there's a li Who cares about your limit? Like, what is that? You think you can set the thermostat for the earth and just decide this? Um, so it's very funny, but, but continuing. The climate of 2023 was the hottest seen in at least 125 thousand years. For the first time in instrument records, uh, some daily global average temperatures went well above the other Paris guardrail of two degrees Celsius. Okay, so here we go again, um, where they say that temperatures are the hottest, not just in our lifetime, um, and not just since they started keeping temperature records, and not even just since when they started keeping historical records of anything, they're saying it's the hottest in 125,000 years. Well before the dawn of human civilization, uh, th th that's how far back they're going. And this is pretty simple. You know, your BS detector needs to be calibrated well enough to at least pick up on this kind of BS. You don't even need a BS detector. Okay, this is a dump truck load of BS pulling up right to your front door. And, 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 I mean, you, you, can, you can sniff it out without much trouble. You don't even need to open the door to sniff it. Um, the idea that anybody actually knows the precise global temperatures from 125,000 years ago is laughably ridiculous. Okay, I don't care. You could take any scientist with all the qualifications in the world. I don't care how long their resume is how many papers they've written, how many schools, uh, how, many, how many degrees they have and PhDs. When they start saying that, you laugh in their face. You laugh in their face. You say, you moron. <laughs> That's You're just an idiot is all you are. Um, because it's completely insane. Nobody has any freaking idea what the temperature was 
tens of thousands of years before the pyramids were built, much less when the pyramids were being built. Nobody knows. Nobody. How could they? There wasn't anyone around to keep track. Like, who are we going to ask? Now, do you know where they get these figures from? Um, because without fail, as I'm saying this right now, I'm going to get a bunch of smarmy comments. Uh, you don't know any. Read a book sometime. You don't know anything about it. They, they, they can figure. They know this. They know this for sure. It's like, and these people saying this, they don't know how. They, they don't know how. If you ask them, you go to the comments right now and you see all the smarmy comments and you ask any of them, well, yeah, how do they know? How do they know? Tell me how they know what the temperature was on like May 15th in the year 10,041 BC. What, how do they know that? Well, they, they just do. It, it's science because of science. Science is a magical crystal ball that tells them. Um, it, and the, the truth, if you want to know how they really get these numbers, is that they pull them out of their asses. That's how they get them. But a scientist won't tell you that if you ask him. If you ask him, oh, where did you get this? He won't say, why, from my own ass, of course. That's where I got it, even though it's true. Um, here's what they will say. So I'm going to read now from NASA's website. Okay, this is not from some climate skeptic website. This is from NASA. And, and here's what they say about how they gather this temperature and uh, atmospheric uh, information from thousands of years ago. Here's what they say. Ice cores are scientists' best source for historical climate data. Every winter, snow, uh, some snow coating Arctic and Antarctic ice sheets is left behind and compressed into a layer of ice. By extracting cylinders of ice from sheets thousands of meters thick, scientists can analyze dust, ash, pollen, and bubbles of atmospheric gas trapped inside. The deepest discovered ice cores are an estimated 800,000 years old. The particles trapped inside give scientists clues about volcanic eruptions, desert uh, extent, and forest fires. The, uh, the presence of certain uh, ions... Uh, indicate past ocean activity, levels of sea ice, and even the intensity of the sun. The bubbles can be released to reveal the makeup of the ancient atmosphere, including greenhouse gas levels. Other tools for learning about Earth's ancient atmosphere include growth rings in trees, which keep a rough record of each growing season's temperatures, uh, moisture, and cloudiness going back about 2,000 years. Okay. So they are looking at ice... They're looking at ice, and they're looking at tree rings. And from that, we're supposed to believe that they have extracted not just very rough temperature sort of ballpark estimates, but what we're supposed to believe is that they have precise yearly annual records that are accurate down to the last degree. That's what they want to believe. So it's not like they're saying, okay, from the year 125,000 BC to 75,000 BC, during that global uh, era, temperatures were relatively warm or whatever. You know, they're not saying because that's a rough, very rough sort of generalized estimate. Instead, they want us to believe that they can identify the temperatures by exact years, dating back 125 millennia and give exact temperatures by looking at tree rings. I mean, this is, I, I used this analogy yesterday for something else, but this is really like reading tarot cards. This is, this is, it's straight up superstition at this point. 
you, you might as well believe that someone can look at a, a tarot card and tell you what your future is going to be. Um, so it is totally absurd. And, and that's why, again, the, the only appropriate response to this is just to laugh at it. All right, here's a, a bizarre story from CNN. Um, the Pentagon's announcement late Friday that U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin had been in the hospital since New Year's Day shocked both the Pentagon press corps and the national security establishment. Three days on, many questions remain, including what's wrong with Austin and when he'll leave Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Maryland. But CNN's reporting and further disclosures from the Pentagon have begun to shed some light on the still murky circumstances around his hospitalization and why it took so long to inform other senior officials. Then we get into the timeline. Austin went into the hospital for an elective procedure on December 22nd when he was on leave. Um, he went home the following day, continued to work from home, allegedly, and then he experienced pain and went back to the hospital. And, um, and nobody knows exactly. For, it says, for days, other Pentagon officials and senior members of the Biden administration, including President Joe Biden, did not know that the defense secretary was in the hospital. Among those in the dark was uh, Hicks, to whom Austin transferred some of his authorities on January 2nd. <laughs> so he, he transferred his authority um, over to somebody else. But that other person didn't even know that he was in the hospital. So the other person didn't know that the power had been transferred to him. Joe Biden did not know that his defense secretary had been in the hospital for days. Now, granted, Biden doesn't know anything because he's a vegetable. But nobody, his, his handlers, let's say, in the White House apparently didn't know this guy was in the hospital. So he disappeared. And, uh, and still, nobody knows why or exactly when. Nobody knew that he was gone. Uh, he has some mysterious health thing going on. And, and he's the Secretary of Defense. John Brennan, former CIA director, was interviewed about this on MSNBC. And uh, here's what he had to say. I think we all wish Secretary Austin a full and speedy recovery. And as you point out, there's still a lot that we don't know about his medical condition and what it was that uh, required him to go back into uh, Walter Reed and the ICU uh, on uh, 1 January. And it is possible that his health condition or his medical condition uh, clouded his judgment at that time. I don't know whether or not he was under certain types of medication or whatever else. Uh, and so that could have been the reason why he decided not to, to notify people as he should have. All right, so no big deal. Uh, it's just the guy running the Defense Department who might, we're told, have clouded judgment because of his medication, whatever the medication is. And we don't know that either. So, and they say, again, that this all stems from some kind of surgery that had complications. Uh, we can only guess what the surgery might be. Um, I think it'd be inappropriate to, to speculate about what his surgical uh needs are or what his illness is, uh, I will just say, and, and, I, and, and I say this very respectfully, but if I, if I had to guess, if I, if I had to come up with some theory about what he was doing in the hospital, um, my guess is that Lloyd Austin was getting gender reassignment. Um, and I, only, only because that seems to be the pattern over at the Pentagon and uh, it's, it's, it's a thing. It's, it's what they do over at the Pentagon. So they're really into that sort of thing. And so maybe Austin was going in for the Rachel Levine special. Maybe he went in and said, give me the old Rachel, Rachel Levine. Um, 
And it, it's, and it, you know, I could see a scenario where Lloyd Austin's looking at Rachel Levine, who's a fake admiral and is getting all of these awards and all this recognition and all these accolades um, simply for, for being a, a man pretending to be a woman. And Austin's probably saying to himself, I, this is not fair. I want, I want some of that too. So maybe he went in for the gender reassignment. The, there's a lot of complications that could come out of, the, out of that kind of surgery because you are mutilating your genitals. And, um, and so that could be where all this comes from. I, and I think, again, it's inappropriate to speculate, totally inappropriate. Um, but uh, that's at least, to me, that's the most likely scenario at this point. Maybe we'll learn more. Uh, what I do know is that we have, yet again, with this administration, another cabinet official who just disappears, and and not only are we not given much information about it, nobody notices that he's gone. So what does that tell you about the government? That these are, it's not even, like we know in a bureaucracy that there are thousands of people who could disappear from the face of the earth tomorrow and nobody would notice. It could be one of those. You ever see that show, The Leftovers, on uh, HBO? It's a really good show, by the way. Only, it was only three seasons long. It wrapped up a few years ago. But anyway, in the premise of the show is that is that one day, like whatever it was, half of the population of the Earth simply disappeared, and um, and that could happen in the federal government, and and nobody would know. Like you wouldn't even notice because most of these people are totally useless. But you would think if you didn't know any better that at least the people at the very top of the pile, the people that are running these agencies, uh, you would think that they might have something relevant to do every day so that if it's not done, people would notice. But no, that's not the case. In fact, oftentimes the people at the top are the most useless of all. And um, yet they still get paid. And, and they still have an enormous amount of power. Um, all right, do we have to talk about this? I think we do. I, I, very briefly, I want to simply touch on this. Um, well, not touch on this, but I, I want to mention it. You've probably uh, heard by now the story of the naked guy uh, in the Bass Pro Shop Aquarium. If you don't, uh, here's Business Insider with the report. A 42-year-old man was arrested in Leeds, Alabama, after diving into a Bass Pro Shop aquarium naked, uh, the man crashed his car, disrobed, and executed a daring plunge into the store's massive aquarium on Thursday night. Uh, eventually, the man climbed over the side of the aquarium, falling to the concrete floor, floor below, where he uh, was knocked out unconscious. And, uh, and then he was arrested. He was charged with public lewdness, disorderly conduct, uh, several other charges. Apparently, he spent five minutes in the water before officers arrived on the scene. So, and, and there's there's plenty of videos and images of this event that have gone viral. Um, I'm not going to share them here. I will say two things. One is that, I mean, I'm amazed that you can apparently swim naked in a Bass Pro Shop aquarium for five minutes before the cops show up. That, that's an enormous amount of time. Think about that, five minutes before anyone pulls you out of it. Now, true, I don't really, there's nothing to compare it to. I don't, I don't know what the average time is for swimming naked in a Bass Pro Shop aquarium. So I can't really say this is above average. Um, and I, as far as I know, he's the first one to do it. So he's sort of setting the bar. 
But five minutes is a lot of time. And, um, but the second thing is that, and this is one of the reasons why I haven't talked about this story, is that I find it really kind of difficult emotionally um, as a Bass Pro fan myself. And look, I know as well as anybody, Bass Pro uh, is a lot of fun. And sometimes, you know, you go to Bass Pro and look, you just go a little nuts. You get you get a little wild in the Bass Pro. We've all been there. But but usually that means that you just buy a lot more fishing tackle than you were originally planning on buying. Um, disrobing and jumping in the aquarium should not be a part of that. And that's the thing that for me to see a man defile the sanctity of the Bass Pro fish tank is very upsetting. So for Bass Pro fans, this is our January 6th. I mean, this is the day that will live in infamy for us. Um, I'll never be able to look at a Bass Pro Aquarium the same way again. I'll always have that image seared in my mind. Uh, and it is, uh, it is a tragedy. Let's get to Was Walsh wrong. First comment uh, says, I think you were a little harsh on the flat earthers. I don't buy the theory, but they do raise some interesting points worth considering. Uh, they don't. They raise no interesting points. The only thing interesting about flat earthers is that they exist in the first place. Uh, the fact that anyone um, in the current year, when things like satellites exist, the fact that anyone can still be a flat earther, that is arguably interesting, but they don't say anything interesting. They have no points. They have no credible arguments at all, of course. Uh, but I will say that I find, and I, and I hear this uh, on, the, on the rare occasion when the flat earther thing comes up, and I even, years ago, I did a, I think I did a whole show on the flat earther theory, uh, probably more time devoted to the topic that was necessary. Um, and there was, and I, there was a lot of feedback to that, I remember. And first of all, there were a lot there were many more pro flat Earth theory responses to that I that I ever expected. There was also a lot of this kind of thing where it was like, well, I don't really buy it, but uh, but but you know, it's, we 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 should be open minded. That position I find to be in some ways even more flabbergasting than the flat Earth position itself, because I I can explain why someone's a flat Earther, right? It, it's because they're they are gullible in the extreme. Uh, they're probably pretty low IQ, and they're extremely ignorant about basic facts about the world. And all of that makes sense to me. You know, I know those kinds of people exist in the world, and so I can kind of wrap my head around that. But this attitude is a bit more mysterious because you're smart enough to not buy the flat earth theory, which isn't really a theory, by the way. A theory is a system used to explain observable phenomena in the physical world. That's what a theory is. And that's why we call gravity a theory. It's not because we're just guessing that gravity exists. It's because of its explanatory and predictive power. That's why we call it a theory. And uh, But flat earth does not explain or describe or predict anything. Um, so it's not a theory. It's just a, it's a nonsense. But anyway, so you know that the quote-unquote theory is wrong, and yet you're willing to consider it. You're, you're open-minded to it. That's what I, it's like, I can understand a child who thinks that Santa Claus is real. And I can understand adults who know that Santa Claus isn't real. What I can't understand is an adult 
who basically knows that Santa Claus is real, but is open-minded to the possibility that he might be real. That's, that is hard for me to, uh, to figure out. All right, Nuance Gal says, remember when right-wingers said they backed the blue, virtue signal about it, then mocked the cops who testified about being beaten, having heart attacks on January 6th? Well, you know, I have a, I have a radical approach to the police that you call yourself Nuance Gal. So if you're a fan of nuance, then you should understand this. Um, so my radical approach to the police is that I back them when they're right, and I criticize them when they're wrong. And that's it. That's what I do. It's not, so that's the, it's a little, it's like a, it's a little small nuance in there, but it's not, it's not too subtle. It's easy to detect. When they, when they do the right thing, I, I back them. Uh, and when they do the wrong thing, I criticize them. And it's really not hard. I don't, I don't find that to be difficult. So, you know, when someone, when someone says, uh, oh, you know, you were on the side of uh, Derek Chauvin with George Floyd, but then at the same time, you were criticizing cops who were arresting, uh, you know, parents at the park during COVID because, well, how's that? How does that make any sense? Well, well, well because the cops that were arresting, you know, the dad at the park with his daughter and COVID, that, those cops were wrong. And so I criticized them for it. Uh, Derek Chauvin, actually, despite being convicted unfairly, was was not wrong. And so I don't criticize him. That's that's it. That's my whole strategy. Antonio says, finally, Koi is funny even without Handler. People have bad nights. You don't have to be an ass to the guy to be against the left. He's a comedian. Chill, Matt, and have more charity. Sh- Shapiro ain't that great either. Should you be judged that way? Oh, no, I, I guarantee Ben Shapiro could come up with a better stand-up set a lot better, actually, than than what Joe Coy did. Granted, the bar's pretty low, but uh, I think he could certainly pull it off. You know, as a parent, I want quality entertainment for my kids that won't insult their intelligence or indoctrinate them with leftist ideology. So when my kids want to watch cartoons, which I will allow uh, once in a blue moon, we watch Bentkey, the new kids streaming entertainment app from The Daily Wire. And right now, you could try it for free for 14 days Bentkey is unlike any other kids' streaming app out there. It features original shows that are fun and entertaining as well, uh, shows that reflect the values you and your family share, not so absurd left-wing garbage that Hollywood keeps trying to push on your kids. You won't find any drag queens, pride parades, or social justice warriors on Bentkey, just premium quality content that kids will love and parents can trust. And here's the best part. You can try Bentkey for free for 14 days. That's right, 14 days of unlimited access to Bentkey's world of adventure, a world full of incredible characters and timeless stories that will entertain and inspire the next generation. All you have to do is use the code UNLOCK at checkout to get 14 days of free access to Bent Key, no strings attached. You can cancel anytime, so don't wait. Go to bentkey.com and use code UNLOCK at sign up to start your trial today. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Now, perhaps you've seen this viral video as it's been circulating online over the past several days. In the video, which has been viewed tens of millions of times on Twitter and millions more on TikTok, we see a D1 female track star, Alana Sabakan, racing some random guy in sweatpants. And the random guy is apparently the track runner's boyfriend's friend. She tells us in the video, uh, the video of the race, which she narrated and posted to her TikTok account, 
that uh, the friend had challenged her to a race. And supposedly, according to her, the friend, quote, refused to believe that a woman could beat him in a race. So unsurprisingly, the woman did beat him in the race. And, you know, she's a D1 track runner and he's a guy with no experience in track who rolled off his couch and decided to race this girl, apparently just for a laugh. And he lost, um, which is not a big surprise. Here's the video. I am a D1 track athlete. about this one time I, for some reason, raced my boyfriend's friend over 400 meters. He refused to believe that a woman could beat him in a race. He does not run, but he challenged me to 400 meters. And I only agreed because I was doing a 400 workout already. So I was like, sure, join me. Then he ended up bringing both his parents, his family, his friends. And I was like, what the heck did I get myself into? But to narrate what went down, I just ran the first 200 meters with him. I just stayed with him. I'm not exerting myself for no reason i have nothing to prove here if you're crazy enough to challenge a 400 800 athlete to a 400 race that's on you i'm not going to correct you and then since he does not run at all his lack of fitness really hit him hard after 200 meters and i was like okay let me just go now and then as you should always do i finish hard because that's what you do as a track runner and this was also one of the reps of my 400 workouts. So I'm just doing my workout here. So yeah, there's me pushing hard. I actually felt some lactic. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so the gap was widening. And I actually ended up running 57 for this, which is pretty good for practice. Now, uh, that video has been celebrated by feminists and trans activists all over social media. They're very excited about it. The feminists see it as a great girl power moment where a woman puts a man in his place, and the trans activists see it as proof that there's no real difference between the sexes and there's no reason why biological males shouldn't be able to compete against women. Um, now, in fact, as I will explain, the video is actually an embarrassment for both groups. It does not make their case, it undermines it. But don't tell that to the media, which has been fawning all over this story as well. Alana's race against the random dude has been reported by Dozens of media outlets. Uh, Today.com published an interview with the runner, which so they because they felt like they had to interview her. And uh, just reading part of it, here's what it says: A man who challenged Division One track and field athlete Alana Sabakan to a, a foot race was swiftly defeated in a viral video that illustrates why female athletes should never be underestimated. Sabakan, 22, tells Today.com that. When she first heard murmurings that her boyfriend's friend thought he could outrun her, she found it ridiculous. But when she was already set to work out at a nearby track, she asked if he wanted to join. He didn't really know what to challenge me in, she says. He was like, yeah, I could beat her in the 400, not realizing that that was one of the hardest track events and that was one of my secondary events. Alana, whose main event is the 800-meter race, finished the 400 meters in 57 seconds, which was, quote, pretty good for practice, she said in the video. Her personal best times are 53 seconds for a 400-meter leg of a relay and 54 seconds in an open race. Now, okay, wait just a minute here. She said that she barely exerted herself and ran a 57 against the guy, but she also says that her personal best is a 53. So running a 57 when your absolute personal best is only four seconds faster than that means that you were definitely exerting yourself, okay? Don't, like, this was not a casual jog, uh, if your best is a 53 and you run the 400 and under 60, then you, you were trying, okay? You, you were definitely trying, but we'll get back to that in a moment. The Today, the, uh, Today article now veers off into a kind of woe is me tale of men disrespecting female athletes. And this we're supposed to believe is uh, a real epidemic. Quote, it was far from the first time Sabakan, who started running when she was five years old, had been challenged to a race by a man. 
Quote, ever since I was younger, a lot of guys would want me to erase them on the playground because they thought that they could beat me, she says. Early reactions to the video suggest to Saba Khan that this was a universal experience. Quote, a lot of women were saying that they experienced that a lot, mainly men trying to challenge them in their sport or talent or whatever they do, she says. In fact, 12% of men in Great Britain think that they could score a point playing tennis against Serena Williams, according to a 2019 poll conducted by uh, YouGov UK, which sampled uh, 1,732 adults. Sabakan eventually turned off comments on the, the TikTok page after it stirred controversy, with some turning it into a debate over whether men or women are better athletes. Okay, I'm, I have to confess I'm a little confused here. I mean, what was the point of that tidbit about 12% of men in Great Britain thinking they can score a point against Serena Williams? 12% is a very small number. So uh, if the premise here is that men are overconfident in their athletic abilities and always disrespecting female athletes, so much so that this is a universal experience for women, then 12% doesn't really make the case. I mean, 12% is hardly universal. And also, by the way, like a, a, a certain portion of that 12% of men probably could score a point against Serena Williams. Not, not, maybe not beat her, but score a point. So this article is stepping all over the point it's trying to make, which is consistent with the pattern that we see emerging here. So let's go back to the video. This is a highly trained D1 female track star running hard enough that she finishes with a time four seconds off of her personal best, and yet she only beats some random dude off the street by, it would appear, like five seconds at most. Um, which, which in, in a track race, like if you're actually racing track, uh, uh, five seconds is a pretty good amount. But keep in mind that the only thing the man has going for him is that he is a man. He's not a runner. He's not an athlete. He's not trained. He has no experience with track and field. He's just a guy, and that's it. And that alone was enough to keep him within striking distance of a D1 female track athlete. Now, just to kind of make the point clear, imagine how this race would look the other way. Okay, imagine some random woman off the street challenging a D1 male track athlete to a 400-meter race. It, 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 it wouldn't, he, she would not come within five seconds. Okay, she would not be, uh, uh, they would not be on the same straightaway on the track at the same time. Like, it wouldn't happen. The guy would be crossing the finish line while the woman had barely made it halfway around the track, at best. In fact, we can make it even easier for the woman in this hypothetical scenario. So imagine a D1 female track runner challenging a D1 male track runner. And for that, we don't need to resort to hypotheticals because the truth can be seen in the numbers. So let's go back to the uh, 2023 NCAA Outdoor Track Championships, which happened in June. The winning male runner in the 400 event finished with a time of 44.24 seconds, which is nearly 10 seconds faster than Alana's best time. Um, or twice as, as much as she beat the other guy by. The guy who finished eighth in that uh, championship uh, match had a time of 45.3, which is nine seconds faster. But, I mean, let's be fair. Uh, Alana doesn't claim to be a Division I champion. She just says she's a Division I you know, runner. So let's compare those times to the actual female champions. 
First place among the women finished with a time of 49.2. So if you're keeping track at home, that means that the fastest woman on the track was four seconds slower than the guy who finished eighth. But it gets better. The women's world record for the 400-meter dash, okay, the fastest time ever recorded by any woman ever in history, is 47.6 seconds. And that record has stood in place since 1985. For nearly 40 years, the fastest time by any woman anywhere in the world ever is 47.6. Which means that the eighth place finisher for the men in the NCAA championships in 2023 beat the women's world record by two seconds. But it gets better still. Because the, the women's record was set by a German runner named uh, Marita Cook. And Cook has long been suspected of using steroids. Okay, 47.6 seconds, two seconds slower than the college kid who finished eighth among the men last June, is seen as so unattainable for women and has proven so impossible for any other woman to even come close to beating that it's assumed, probably correctly, that it was achieved with the help of performance-enhancing drugs. But we still aren't done. Okay, Alana's personal best, again, is 53 seconds. Um, we've already established that she would get uh, totally annihilated by her male college counterparts, only we don't even need to limit it to college. Alana attends the University of Virginia, and just for fun, I went to check the times for Virginia high school runners. And so here, for example, are the results for the boys' 400-meter race at the Class 6 state high school championships last year, Okay. First place finished in 48.1 seconds, which, fun fact, would have been fast enough to win the gold medal in the women's 400-meter race at the Tokyo Olympics. This is a high schooler. 17th place among the high school boys finished at 51.33, which means that Alana, on her very best day, would not finish in the top 17 among high school boys in her state. Okay, so to review, the fastest high school boy in Virginia is faster in the 400-meter race than the woman who won the gold medal in the event at the last Olympics. And the fastest college male is significantly faster than the woman who set the world record for her gender, a record that has proven so untouchable for four decades that most people assume she was on drugs. And Alana is slower than all of them, though she's still pretty fast you know, fast enough to beat some random guy off the street by four or five seconds. So what does this all prove? Well, it proves that uh, basically exactly the opposite of what the feminists and trans activists were hoping to prove with this story. It proves instead that men and women are very different and men are vastly superior in almost every sport, which is why men and women should not compete against each other in those sports. Men are faster and stronger than women on average, a lot faster and stronger, a whole hell of a lot faster and stronger, so much so that no woman in history, even ones hopped up on steroids, have run a 400 time that would have placed them in the top eight at the NCAA men's championship last June. So uh, there's no competition here. Like there's nothing to talk about, though we are still forced to talk about it. We shouldn't have to talk about it. All things being equal, I would rather not spend my time explaining that men are better than women at sports. I would rather not have to go and pull up all of these like times and information and provide actual citations just to prove a thing that everybody in the world has known until three seconds ago. 
And, and so we could end this conversation. We could all move on. If you people, you on the left, would just stop with the nonsense already and simply admit what cannot be denied. As long as you're running around making idiotic claims about how men and women are the same and men have no biological advantages, then the sane among us will be forced to continue correcting you. We can't simply allow your idiocy to go unchallenged. So cut the crap and drop the act. Admit that men are faster than women and men are stronger than women. Men are not women. Admit it or we will be compelled to continue embarrassing you, as I have just been forced to do here again. And just remember, as this happens, that it's all your fault. And also that you are today canceled. That'll do it for the show today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Talk to you tomorrow. Godspeed. Thank <laughs> you.